On this week's episode of Where We Are, we'll catch you up on some of the recent Supreme Court decisions, what they mean for you, what they mean for our politics. Glad to be with you. Thanks for listening to Where We Are. This is Where We Are. We are the wearers. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. Melissa, as yes. you know, Where We Are podcast is, uh, is a brought to listeners in partnership with the That Sounds Fun Network. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're so glad to partner with Annie Downs and her team over there. We recently got to partner with our friends at The Snack Show. Yep, The Snack Show. And that with was a Jamie fun, and Fallon. That was such a fun episode. Glad it's, it to, was such a fun episode. Glad to talk through presidential snacks. For our 4th of July weekend. Yep. So happy 4th for folks. Uh, Melissa? Yeah? Uh, we have a question for our audience. Okay. What's the question? That's so funny because I have a question for our audience. And I didn't know you were going to do this. Okay. You, what's your question? Yeah. My question for the audience is... We've been discussing this week whether we should do a sort of weekly ranking of the Republican candidates for the primary. Uh And uh, I have a lot of thoughts. I'm following the race closely, not just what's sort of what the headlines are, but but following the campaigns, I'm in conversation with a number of the campaigns. Uh, and so they could be helpful. On the other hand, uh, I am very sensitive to those who would say votes don't even take place for another seven, mm-hmm. eight months. The general election is a year and a half away. Right. Can we pump the brakes? And so... Really, we want to hear from you all. Do you want a power ranking? <laughs> yeah. What what level of is it helpful at this point for us to, on a regular basis, be keeping you up to date on how the Republican primary is shaking out? Or mm-hmm. is your general sense like, you know what? I don't care that much until we're like a week away from votes taking place. And then, then mm-hmm. you can catch me up. And I'll be honest, I think the latter is a totally healthy perspective. <laughs> it is, it is. But, so, but we want to know uh, what, what our audience wants. And so uh, reach out to us on social media. Drop us a line at, what's the email? We have an email now where you can send us questions if, in case you're just not on social media or whatever. It's wherewearepod at gmail.com. So it's the name of our podcast, W-E-A-R. W E A R E P O D, where we are pod at gmail.com. Great. Let us know. Um, and you know, while you're there, if you're if you're if your answer is let's let's pump the brakes on 2024 coverage as like a regular weekly feature, let us know what you do want us to cover because we have to talk about something. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, thank you for that. Melissa, though, I'm very intrigued by what question you have. Do you have. want to know what the funniest thing? You and I are just so us constantly. Um, 
and you come up, your question is like very related to the pod. And my question actually came up last night as I was watching TikTok because I got a TikTok <laughs> where, <laughs> sorry guys, where um, they used the American Beauty main theme of the soundtrack, the piano piece. Mm-hmm. I should probably pay, play it right now because I don't know about you all. I saw American Beauty once, but this piano piece like haunts me. And I, whenever I hear it, like, I'm immediately, like, transported to, like, a place with that piece. And I was just sort of, I want to know, what's your favorite sort of soundtrack piece? Because I, lo- I love talking about soundtracks. That's a great question. Okay, favorite soundtrack piece. Um, uh, Melissa's throwing American Beauty in there. I, well, Melissa's looking to pull up the song. Um, I got to throw in Phantom Thread. I have to throw in on oh, yeah. Chesil Beach. Uh, those are the two soundtracks that I wrote most of my next book to. I love both soundtracks very much. Uh, I have to add Atonement. Yeah, I mean, Dar- Dario Marinelli like went hard on Atonement soundtrack. That soundtrack's a masterpiece. As a millennial, I have to throw in Garden State. If you know, you know. Uh, uh, I have to throw in Soul Food and The Best Man Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and Waiting to Exhale. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That is so Michael. That is so Michael. And uh, so uh, those three soundtracks are exquisite. Um, And really, if you haven't, you, you need Soul Food, Waiting to Exhale and The Best Man, uh, these are soundtracks you need in your life. Mm. And it was back in the day when, like, soundtracks... I mean, I know I know that they still... Soundtracks today will still include, like, new music. Like, yeah, yeah. But f- folks who are not of... Uh, younger folks may not know that there was a time when, like, singles came out on soundtracks like regularly like you were buying soundtracks regularly like they were they were were, whole separate marketed things yeah you were buying maya song you were buying the soundtrack to rugrats the movie because of maya song back in like 1996 yes yeah yeah, yeah. um okay do you want do you want to play this yeah i'll play the american beauty song i mean my favorite soundtrack of all time is interstellar because hans zimmer is my favorite composer but this by thomas newman i hear it and i i don't even like know what to do with it and i'm about to play it it's just got of, of course a commercial but here we go It's transporting. Like, you're just, it's so wonderful. My main thing is that if nostalgia had a sound, that would be what nostalgia sounds like. Hmm. That song just screams nostalgia for me. Nostalgia is such an uncomfortable feeling for me, so that song makes me wildly uncomfortable (laughs) and nostalgic. But it's so beautiful. Like, Thomas Newman just, like, hit it out of the park with that song. I don't even remember that movie. I've seen it once. Yeah, yeah. But I know that piano piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, our question so, yeah, for you. Yeah, so let us know if you have a favorite soundtrack, what it is. Um, 
I mean, the soundtrack for I have to add uh, closer. Oh, you love him. I love. I mean, it, yeah. the Damien Rice stuff is uh-huh. just fantastic. Remember, I bought you soundtrack. that CD when yeah. we were dating. So good. Yeah. Um, all right, well, let's get to the news. We want to talk Supreme Court, and you know, we're not going to get into the weeds no. of all of these cases. What I want to do is just kind of like sketch out. A few points. We'll talk about some of the big cases um, and just kind of catch you up to speed. Uh, this has been another, you know, there have been some some headline cases in this, this part of this docket. Um, I think it's notable, you know, before Thursday, mm-hmm. the headline I had, Melissa, yeah. was that we are seeing... Uh, uh, we were seeing a, a, a court that was making decisions that reflected to me the vision that some people have for the future of the Republican Party, mm-hmm. which is yeah. sort of less, slightly less, you know, less deferential mm-hmm. to corporate interests. Mm-hmm. And to me, the Norfolk Southern case was emblematic of this. Uh, this was a 5-4 decision oh, right. mm-hmm. written by uh, Neil Gorsuch uh, that up- upheld a Pennsylvania law requiring corporations to consent to being sued in its courts as a condition uh, for doing business in that state. Um, Corporation argued for something more favorable uh, that offered it stronger protection from lawsuits. Um, An expected outcome to this case is that other states will move for to similarly protect its citizens mm. from corporations that operating in in their state. Yeah. Now, you know, right? So, um, right. Uh, the, the the textbook answer here, uh, along with every other case, would be, you know, this is not a political decision. This is uh, sort of just interpreting the law, dun dum but but it does. Uh, I mean, it was a five-four decision. Yeah, um, you had uh, you had conservatives uh, uh, lining up alongside uh, the progressives on the court for for this uh, for this ruling, and and it does it does suggest to me. Um, as, as a matter of just sort of, and of course I should say Gorsuch, a Trump appointee, um, that that this this is a more a more uh, uh, populist decision from the court. Yeah, for sure. You you pair that interestingly, Chief Justice John Roberts is historically antagonistic towards the Voting Rights Act. <laughs> All right, yes. and so this is a long standing. Going back to his Harvard Law days, 
uh, and uh, the the court has made significant decisions uh, undermining the Voting Rights Act. But in this docket, uh, yeah. the court made a really important decision that surprised a lot of onlookers, rejecting Alabama's gerrymander, upholding a key application, a historical application of the Voting Rights Act, mm-hmm. uh, opening up the door in both Alabama, in Alabama as well as in Louisiana and potentially in other states for uh, uh, a increase in the number of uh, a black majority districts, mm-hmm. congressional districts yep. in these states. So, I mean, the, 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 the basic background in this case is Alabama uh, tried to put in place, well, put in place a gerrymander, yep. um, which despite Alabama uh, despite Alabama having seven congressional seats and 25 percent of voters being black, um, the, the, the court in a, another 5-4 decision, um, this one, the three progressives were joined by John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, the, the court said that the Republican dominated state legislature, had denied African-American voters a reasonable chance to elect a second representative uh, of their choice. And so these two decisions were earlier in in the docket and seemed to really um, uh, often that's how these go, more consensus decisions and Mm -hmm. also some some surprises that are sort of contra the anticipated sort of political ideological balance of the court can be earlier in the docket. And then, of course, we saw Thursday and Friday um, some more uh, 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 expectedly conservative decisions. But, Melissa, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. What... What what thoughts do you have before we get to sort of the three? I guess we could we could say the f- four uh, interesting cases that came out in the last in the last week. You have any thoughts on 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 the Supreme Court up to this point? I guess I should say, Melissa. Yeah. What? Right. These decisions come in the midst of weeks and weeks of heavy scrutiny on the court well yeah um around clarence thomas around sam uh, around justice alito a lot of uh accusations and reporting around uh, them being beneficiaries of sort of wealthy Mm -hmm. uh uh, wealthy uh friends and including uh some court activists like leonard leo of the federalist society Accusations that these justices are essentially paid off. I will say I thought Jamel Bowie had a very good column on on this this week in which yeah, he explained, I think, I think rightfully that this is not so much a matter of justices being sort of paid for their opinions in a straightforward manner. I think what these stories suggest of which there are analogs on the left, is the social infrastructure that's developed around these political divides. 
Yes. Um, that and, shouldn't be there. Well, and I, it, well, well, it, right. It's so. Um, I mean, it's more complex than what I just said. But. It's more right. It's more. You know, like these people have lives and and sure. friendships, and and we know that sorting based on political ties has happened. Uh, has happened generally across the population. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, Melissa, like we we went, we've been at, we've been at functions. We have been. We've yeah. been at functions where with various members uh, with, of the court with members of the court and just more broadly. You know, especially because it's such a, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but it is such a revolving door between these government positions and the advocacy groups. So a lot of people who are currently serving in the White House or on the courts or in 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 uh, roles of public office came from the advocacy groups. And a lot mm-hmm. of people in the advocacy groups got there because they had just served in government. And so... Yeah. Uh, that's what I mean when I say like the social infrastructure that grows up around these political ties, particularly in a city like D.C., where so much of the culture and, and is run by politics, mm-hmm. that I'm not saying it's not a problem. I'm not saying that, um, but but it's not, I don't think it's something that in general... These sorts of ties, again, obviously, if if the law is being broken, it's being broken. But sort of fraternizing, being friends with people in advocacy roles, if you're in a position where they could feasibly want to influence you, I mean, I mean that that's that's a lot of the relationship. I mean, I mean, I mean, that's just, that's just social life. I don't know what you do. I don't know what you do about that. And I don't know if a law could be made <laughs> sort of, Where, like, sort of Supreme against Court that. Justices can't live in DC and they have to live elsewhere. They come in to, for the, you know, the doc, you know, like the dockets that they have to get through in the decisions, but that would right. be absolutely wild. Yeah, no, it would, <laughs> it would be wild. And I don't even think like that would like, like even proximity would actually even make yeah. that big of a deal. Cause it wouldn't because of the amount of power that they obviously attract and they all come from like wealthy backgrounds maybe not originally um but like to get onto the supreme court you have to have been pretty successful in your career and so yes. you're hanging around other wealthy people like it's not yes right um you know that's just the social circles that you have built up because you are in your 50s or 60s or 70s and getting onto the onto the bench yeah so I, i'm sorry for doing all that context setting melissa but but i i did remember that was i think Important and not like coincidental that leading into all these decisions. Oh, yeah. Weeks of like intense scrutiny of the the court. Um, But so, yeah, Melissa, before we get to some of these, some of the more controversial cases. Yeah, I don't have have many comments outside of the, the, the bigger cases that came down just a few days ago. The only thing that I'll say is, as usual... When you sort of get into the dicier, more contested, or the cases where we know that even with a court that is more bent towards um, uh, conservatives these days, that it's always interesting reading the opinions and the dissent and things. Um, the how the uh, the language that the various whomever it is that's writing these things, the language towards one another is a lot more. Uh, 
um, collegial. And then as we get into these more difficult cases, you can see the sort of fire <laughs> under some people's butts that come start to come out yeah, yeah. in terms of like you can really tell that they deeply disagreed or, you know, they're yes. very, very for whatever decision is happening. And when they're referring to one another and how the other is writing their opinion or their dissent. Oh, man, you saw this last some week, blistering some stuff, with yeah. the affirmative action or with um, the 303 creative case, which we'll go over. Um, uh and and that I think the inner workings and the inner machinations of like the relationships between these nine people I always find to be one of the most fascinating aspects. Yeah. But let's get into these other four that came down this week. So we've got we've got the case on affirmative action. We've got the case on the web designer serving um, same sex couples. We've got the case of the U.S. postal worker um, and observing uh, Sabbath, and we've got the case of student loans, student loan debt, the the Biden administration's um, policy plan to implement um, ten thousand or twenty thousand in student loan debt relief. Which one would you like to start with? Yeah. So just before we do that, I do want to read Sarah Isker, who was a Trump DOJ official, but sort of never Trumpy or, or uh, you know, is, is, is now at the dispatch and is, uh, you know, is, is the conservative in the uh, left, right, center podcast, etc. Um she did tweet something that was that, that I thought was interesting before we move into this the, this next the conversation about controversial opinions. If she tweeted a fun SCOTUS stats from this term, fifty uh, percent of the cases were unanimous in outcome. Eighty nine percent had at least one of the liberal justices in the majority. Eight percent. Uh, only 8% were six to three decisions with the six Republican appointees all on one side, and only 3% were five to four decisions with the three Democratic appointees all on one side uh, in, in dissent in, in all those five, four uh, cases. Uh, I, th- I, think that's, I think that's important you know, and notable what it shouldn't do is like right so so the pushback against that w- would be well you know Supreme Court takes up a lot of cases that don't have that clear of a at least within like the dividing lines in our politics today that clear of a uh, partisan valence and that's true but that's almost kind of the point which is like the Supreme Court you know, there, are, there are so much money is poured into advocacy around the Supreme Court, and there's so much uh, of this idea that the court is is just constantly made up of these sort of political decisions that are sort of the court imposing its will. Dun, dun, dun. And I think it's important to, as Sarah did here, sort of zoom back and say, well, actually, the, the work of the court in terms of the cases they take up, is uh, is not just taking up sort of a docket of of uh, settling uh, of sort of imposing the court's will on 
the most tender political issues of our yeah. time, you know, mm -hmm. like, and, and so I do think that that's helpful. Now, when you hear about the Supreme Court in the news, of course, you aren't hearing it about unanimous decisions on some like regulation you've never heard of. When you hear about the Supreme Court, it's about these big like hot button issues, but th that doesn't constitute in terms of time spent, in terms of, again, like the, the, the quantity of uh, cases that the court considers, it, it doesn't reflect uh, the, the full work of the court. With that caveat, let's move to the controversial cases. <laughs> <laughs> We're just like slowly inching our way towards yeah. like, ah, oh, come on. Let's talk about the postal. I think let's start with the postal. Yeah, that's the easier you, one. You know, so this was a unanimous decision. And for me, that's the headline. Uh, we have now another case in a building number of cases of the Supreme Court deciding unanimously in a religious freedom case. Right. Um, laying down markers in this case, it's for employers. In something like Hosanna Tabor, it was sort of a message to government, government yeah. like don't go be past you know, this point, like we're giving you a framework to work within. Um, so this case involved a Christian postal worker who, who, who refused to work on Sabbath for uh, his, uh, so that he could practice his, uh, his, his religion. The, the court, again, unanimously sent the case back to the lower courts uh, with uh, the, the instruction that uh, the lower courts must uh, apply analysis that's industry-specific. Uh, and so, so basically, they're 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 asking the lower court to uphold a more robust uh, uh, level of scrutiny uh, to to cases where employers want to deny a a, a, a worker's religious freedom accommodation request. And so, uh, really, uh, really interesting case again because it was unanimous because it's another in these long you know uh, over the last 20 30 years these notable supreme court decisions on religious freedom that i see as the supreme court trying to recast and re-solidify religious freedom doctrine in a country where religion religious demographics and religious understanding is changing rapidly the supreme court yep. is sort of asserting it, it, it itself to in some ways move and 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 set new boundaries mm -hmm. but in many cases just to reaffirm uh reaffirm of religious freedom protections. Melissa, any any thoughts on this case? No, this that's very straightforward. Yeah, I think it's straightforward. One. It does lead us into uh, the next case, which obviously dealt with religious views, but was actually a case about free speech, which is the case of um, a web designer company called 303 Creative uh, that was... Um, the Supreme Court had to look at the anti-discrimination laws of the state of Colorado and whether or not they impinged on the free speech of a of this web designer who owns her own company who was refusing to make a 
website for a potential um, uh, wedding couple, a same-sex couple. Um, so did Colorado's anti-discrimination laws actually um, impinge on the free speech rights of this web designer? And the court ruled in favor, I think, it, what was it, a 6-3? to three? Yep, 6-3. A 6-3 to three. ruling in favor of this web designer um, saying that this Colorado anti-discrimination law impinged on her free rights, uh, free speech rights. Yeah. Um, so importantly, it was not decided on religious freedom grounds. Nope, free speech. It's a, it's a free speech case. Um, I think also, you know, notably, you know, what I'd say is, I was seeing, I was seeing some. David Brody, oh David Brody, you know David Brody, you know shared this. David Brody was a longtime reporter for CBN News. Uh, he now is involved in in uh, a sort of new media uh, effort. You know, David Brody shared that this, you know, this decision was you know a, a major major sort of win for Trump. He said really bad week for liberals, really great week for the U.S. Constitution. He, he said that this decision was uh, a part of the Trump effect. Um, you know, I, I, I think I think the case is, is important. I think to the extent that you want to the extent to which folks want to draft this into being an LGBT rights case. Again, it's very important. The court decided this on free speech grounds, religious freedom, LGBT rights, like it it was not, definitely not central to the decision. And uh, those aren't the grounds on which the case was decided. I just think it's really rich for there to be victory laps on this in the wake of, you know, Dozens of Republicans supporting the Respect for Marriage Act. Yeah. Uh, Neil Gorsuch, a Trump appointee, writing the decision in Bostock. And so it's just, um, it seems to me like the partisan, the partisan impulse to claim victory is really like overcoming uh, an analysis of where we are (laughs) Um, and where, where, where the law currently stands on these issues and the role that Trump appointees have, have had in, in, in deciding against conservative religious freedom interests. And so, so that, that would be the, that would be the thing I'd say on this case. I do think the progressive, uh, the liberal justices concern about, um, uh, about this, um, there, there, there not being a limiting principle here, mm-hmm. I think is, I, th- I think is, is a legitimate, legitimate yeah, concern. Uh, I think, cons- I think conservatives would probably throw, throw back that there wasn't a, I mean, quite explicitly, there wasn't a limiting principle in Obergefell when the yeah. when the Surgeon General said like well maybe maybe religious colleges will have the will have the courts coming after them next uh we'll, we'll like have to wait and see um and so just 
a lot of the cultural war kind of issues now, part of the way that they function is that there is great disincentive towards there being limiting principles on either side because everyone is terrified and everyone wants the other side to be terrified. And that's, you know, not a healthy place to, to be in. But Melissa, any, any additional thoughts on 303 before we, before we move on? No, I don't. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's talk affirmative action and then, and then we'll, I mean, so really we have two higher ed cases. Yes, that is correct. And, our most listened to episode is on student loan debt. Yeah, Michael and I had a debate. And so we'll we'll return. We'll save that for the end. The affirmative action case, this was another uh, 6-3 decision. Uh, and in, in this decision, the conservative uh, justices accounted for the six and ruled that a race-conscious admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina are unconstitutional. Uh, this is a very significant decision very for, significant. for a higher ed. I There are more important things to say about it, but this I, I do think it's for the second time in just a just over a year this was a victory lap moment for justice clarence thomas yes the victory lap he took last year was in the dobbs case in which he unnecessarily in my view uh wrote a concurring opinion that uh that put suggested that other precedents should be up for revision in a way that um, in a way that I, I, I think the, uh, provoked a backlash that set his own ideological sort of desires uh, backward. You'll remember the Respect for Marriage Act was basically advanced through Congress in response to that those few lines in Thomas's, uh, Thomas's uh, opinion. And now in this case, just Thomas used it to make uh, use use the decision in uh, this affirmative action case to really advance his view of race relations in this country, mm-hmm. um, which um, uh, and so he uh, he he made some. He said this is not 1958 or 1968. Today's youth do not shoulder moral debts of their ancestors. Uh, He described college admissions as having become a zero-sum game that has uh, uh, made uh, Asian students suffer because of uh, an overcorrection by courts during the civil rights era. and then we we got to see Sotomayor and Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, who wrote her own dissent, mm-hmm. uh, r- respond quite forcefully. Yes. Uh, and so th- this case really was a sort of 
um, a set piece of racial disagreement yes. in this in this country and competing narratives about yes. both the the meaning of our our history and the state of race relations today in a yes. way that's not all that dissimilar from the debate that's been playing out between Nikki Haley and Tim Scott and Barack Obama um, yes. that's being you know taking place in the context of uh, of uh, GOP primary election. and the 2024 yeah. election. Um, so, so, so that's part of the context. Another piece that I'll add to this is that Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion, and uh, this is not a uh, this is not an original insight. Um, what the court did not do is say that race cannot be um, racial experiences uh, and particularly adversity cannot be considered uh, in college admissions. And President Biden picked up on this. I participated in a in a call the White House held soon after the decision, and they emphasized significantly that they're going to be focused on uh, responding to this decision, helping higher ed institutions respond to this decision by focusing on that that sort of opening the Supreme Court gave, which is uh, yes, you can't uh, you you can't um, sort of the, the the fact of race alone can't dictate admissions policies but whether it's through the admissions essay which was significant which was particularly uh, or specifically mentioned or through other means uh, colleges can take into consideration uh, adversity students have faced, including adversity because of racial discrimination as part of the admissions process. And so for, for me, Melissa, like I, I, um, I think all in all, I don't think we were, re we were ready as a nation to do away with these kinds of with, with affirmative action policies. I do share, and David Brooks spoke about this this week, I share David's, I, I do think the system was imperfect. I do think that the, I do think that the system was, um, its stated purpose was carried out through means that were, um, that led to negative externalities. Yes, that's a good way. That's a good way of putting it. Um, and so, I wouldn't say I'm. I'm hopeful in the sense that this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for better systems to be devised that really get at what uh, at um, accounting for. Uh, accounting for adversity and accounting for uh, various levels of privilege in the admissions process. Um, 
now I, I don't have a lot of I'm not optimistic sort of our our higher ed institutions will get it right but but I'm 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 hopeful that this provokes that this provides at least an opportunity for better systems to be uh, be created I am of course concerned that we'll see a fallback in diversity in college admissions um, uh, I, I I do wonder if the incentives and the commitment within higher ed institutions is such that generally is such that we won't see that we won't see a, a, a slide back. We, we, we won't see gains reverse because higher ed institutions are, uh, have their own sort of stake in this with uh, the growth of the administrative state of uh, uh, the, the administration of these higher ed institutions, their own professed values. And so uh, a lot of people will be keeping an eye on it. Someone noted, you know, unlike a lot of other things, we'll be able to know if there's an effect, uh, what the effect of this Supreme Court decision is pretty soon because there are admissions yes. classes every year. And so, <laughs> you know, it, it won't take. 15 years to determine whether the Supreme Court decision set back diversity um, will have will have at least early returns on that, you know, within the next 12, 18 months. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree with you. I don't think our country was ready for this kind of ruling to come down. Um, I do completely agree that the system was imperfect, but sometimes you have to go with the imperfect because we don't really have much else in place when it yeah. comes to trying to stem the sort of disadvantages that um, black communities face across the United States writ large. Um, we know that like, we, we know that in so many other areas of life, like when you go um, into like black communities in a city, it's like a food desert uh, quite often. We know that black home ownership is still quite lower than like white home ownership. Like we have all kinds of signs that a lot of this stuff persists when you think about kids and the types of schools that they go to and that sort of thing, like, of course, there's going to be more adversity. And so that's why affirmative action made sense, you know, what, 40, 50 years ago and why it technically still makes sense today, even if it was an imperfect system and led to negative externalities. No. But basically what this ruling does as well, like you were just saying, we're going to see pretty quickly through statistics what actually happens at Harvard, at North Carolina and at other universities, because it's not just going to be them is how well ad hoc university to university, college to college actually deals with trying to create some sort of level of diversity or equity or system or quote, whatever, that appears like affirmative action but isn't. But it's just there when it comes to big problems like this where you know affirmative action was just sort of one way of trying to solve the entire enchilada of racial relations in this country. Like it takes much more than that. And that's also another reason why it was so imperfect. Imperfect is because so much burden was being placed on that specific practice when we don't have a heck of a lot else um, to actually help the issue is that, you know, I always worry when we go from a system where it is sort of top down putting sort of rules in place I, I always get more worried when rules suddenly become very, very decentralized and we'll go school by school by school um, in terms of the whole, uh, you know, what it will, what the higher education um, sort that, of apparatus But that is like. what we have. I know. 
But I, I, I mean, there was no... All these schools' admissions policies were decided by the schools themselves. These weren't... Yes, but the affirmative action sort of... It, I mean, one of the other reasons why this is so upsetting to, to folks who are in favor of affirmative action is because of like the cultural aspect, the, the symbolism aspect of it all as well. That's what I'm talking about, like a sort of um, more centralized rule that schools could follow um, in how they actually made their admissions decisions. Right. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, affirmative affirmative uh, race conscious affirmative action programs allowed for at least like the the appearance and I, and I think it's fair fair to say that there was some sort of uh, direct influence of like a blunt in, uh, of a of a blunt instrument mm-hmm. that was directed towards this and now and 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 now that 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 the instrument has been has been dulled uh, yes. in in the admissions process has been um, dulled when it comes to racial preference and mm-hmm. and so I think that yeah no I think there's there's definitely there's definitely legitimate concern about what the fallout of that's going to be huh. yes especially at a time when higher education has a lot of problems and the yes. cost of education is high um, and. Uh, how your jobs are so dependent on where you went to school, prestige, all of that um, really affects obviously the the entirety of a person's life. Yeah, all the way through retirement. Yeah, I I will say just to like close close out like I spoke sort of vaguely to this before. One of the things I hope that we'll do is use this as an opportunity to consider more heavily factoring income. And, and, and you know, like the, the court struck this down based on the idea that we, that it, that you can't, that there are like civil rights laws against using race uh, to dictate access to goods and services and, and, and in this case, like higher, higher ed. Um, there is no constitutional provision against considering, again, the adversity factor, the income factor, the class factor, and we should we should uh, we should think about because that's really what we're trying to get at when when you talk about and and that is a that is a a way of um, uh, providing. There is a tool in the box that we have not adequately used for making sure that our higher ed institutions reflect uh, reflect the country, and that is to make sure that lower income students have access uh, to uh, to uh, to higher ed institutions. And so, I hope that hope that um, uh, uh, that this may open up opportunities for for revisiting how. Uh, how those kinds of factors are are considered. Mm -hmm. uh, Speaking of the cost of education. Good transition. Student loan debt. uh, Yes. The Biden administration's plans to uh, relieve people under a certain income amount of either $10,000 or $20,000 if you had Pell Grants has been struck down, um, specifically under uh, the the idea that the Biden administration was trying to... um, 
work this policy through the HEROES Act from the early 2000s. And it was very interesting that the Biden administration was extremely prepared for this ruling to come down because within hours of it, we had the White House, the Department of Education coming out and saying that they were going to propose a bunch of new income-based um, sort of uh, rules to provide relief for folks. But the very first thing would be to go after this kind of relief again, but this time through the Higher Education Act or the HEA um, which is a which is a, you know a different piece of legislation from the Heroes Act, uh, but they already put out the warning that this would take time because they have to essentially. Um, it's a very delicate rules process where yes, it has to be followed. That now that they know that the courts are like the courts are going to be looking for ways to <laughs> uh, to. to uh, cut off workarounds from their from their from from this ruling, and so they, they they just need to follow the regulation process to 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 the T or the rulemaking process. Yeah, to the so so now it will take longer, and because of that, because some of the things are so uncertain as to exactly who would benefit from relief, you know, it's another reason why the whole thing is just and an they utter know. Mess. I mean, so this is important. Like like they basically the Department of Education. The Biden administration basically knows, but they can't say it because they can't prejudge no. the rulemaking process. Yes. They and can't so, say, okay, everybody with $150,000 yes. or less will be able to qualify. You know, it's going to be a bunch of like something they about have to do the public poverty hearing. line. Well, yeah, yeah, they have to do public hearings. There has to be like a whole whole thing. Um, and anything else you want to you wanna cover on this? No, but we, you know, we've got this, we've got this election and clearly they still think it's important enough for them to have had an entire plan for when it was struck down um, to continue to entice the folks who this was important to. But the fact that they don't have an answer yet as to who will benefit um, will definitely be a, a burden to them politically uh, because they won't be able to very clear in a very clear way tell people like you you know this is gonna you know that 10 or twenty thousand dollars you thought you were suddenly gonna have yep you're gonna have it back like they can't tell that to a single person right now and that just leads us to the what michael and i what drove us wild about as soon as you know this policy came out and within like a few days everybody was saying legally this is going to be challenged and probably will fall is yep. that the fact that the biden administration would have um gone down this route after having very talented people on their legal team take a look at it and not flagged it in this way is absolutely wild to us. You cannot dangle actual money, not just like, oh, here's like a tax break if you have to right. qualify for this. Real $10,000 or $20,000 material money to a huge swath of people, millions upon millions of people. Tens and you tens cannot of millions dangle of people, that in front of people And then take it away from them. You can't have made this kind of sort of um, unilateral like executive move only to have it taken away and absolutely. Because just... it's not a unilateral move. We have like a system of government. Yes. Uh, I just find it, Melissa, and we've been, for folks who have listened, we've been talking about this for months. And, you know. I told people this is how it was going to go, and it went this way. And I find it to be just, I find it to be cynical. 
I find it to be so cynical. And, you know, maybe... Like, I want to leave some room for... You know, maybe they didn't know it was going to go this way. But again, and it was in it was in the case. Speaker Pelosi mm-hmm. in like 2020 said yeah. the president just can't do this. Yeah. Biden was well on the record. And this was like this was this was um, it, so here. Here's here's the cynical read on this, which is Biden needed to get progressives off his back on some uh, for for some issues, so they made a decision to to do this to put this forward. If not knowing, at least you know eighty percent expecting that it that the courts would sh- would shut it down, that the courts would not allow them to move forward. But they figured they figured at. Well, if that happens, we could blame the courts. We could blame Trump. We did what the progressives wanted. Uh, and we could blame the courts and, and, and Republicans for not letting it get done. We, we, you know, they're, they're, still, they're still tweeting out every Republican who held the decision. The Biden White House is tweeting out about you know the 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 covid the ppp loans they took and i just i just think it's so uh i i find it to be unserious i i think that there are millions of americans who do not follow the courts who aren't following the ins and outs but were asked to apply to the Department of Education for what seemed like a very straightforward program, which is if you have this amount of loans and if you have this level of income, your your loans up to this amount will be canceled. And as of right now, there is no reliable, immediate, transparent plan for how those loans will be uh, canceled, forgiven, and payments are going to start kicking in. Now, the Department of Education has, there's going to be like a year transition period where if you miss a payment, it won't affect your credit rating and sort of these various things. Look, I I, I just think if, 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 if you take this shot, you're responsible for having it go through. And I just thought it was laughable on its face that a COVID bill was going to be determined to be sufficient grounds for the executive branch unilaterally for giving millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of, of student loans. So I, I, I am, I, now here's what I will say. To the administration's credit, they were much more reserved like if you compare their response to this decision and their response to the affirmative action mm-hmm. decision, yeah. almost night and day. So I, to their credit, um, they, they did not make grandiose statements about this being a rigged court or not in response to the student loan decision. The president said he thought it was a wrong decision. They announced a plan to move forward. 
but they didn't respond with heavily partisan rhetoric against the court. I, I think because they, I think because they 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 knew they didn't have the strongest the strongest case. That's one, um, and, and and so I I will give them I, I I will give them credit for that. They sort of they sort of you know they 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 couldn't move it through Congress. They tried to do it on their own. They're respecting the court's decision. Um, there there was no there was no you know we're we're going to do it anyway or sort of no they are respecting the court's decision and they announced a plan that's in line with um with with uh you know honoring honoring the court's decision but gosh I don't like how this has played out for people who who were really counting on those resources yeah people were already planning their life because yes. of that kind of resource um being lifted off of them and I just cannot believe policy I, there's the whole all the po- political machinations just policy wise just how much it was bungled <laughs> from a from a policy making standpoint and also honestly my more cynical take is that the administration was much more subdued on its response because they knew that they had they shoulder completely the all of the blame in terms of it failing because they th- they should have seen this coming and they shouldn't have done it this way and and if i and if i were them i would make sure that my response is quiet so that the focus could be elsewhere well yeah Right and, and right, and that's the thing. You know, if, if if they would have said, like, you just can't, you can't say, "Hey, we're going to try this," but we don't know if the courts will accept it because then you're you're basically admitting defeat before the case. But but because they couldn't do that, what they had to do was say, "This is happening." I think they collected these applications in part so that the Supreme Court felt like, oh, gosh, this is already moving forward. Like, are we really going to tens of millions of Americans have applied? Are we really going to do something so grand as to intervene on the executive branch moving forward this policy? But the answer was yes. Yes, the Supreme Court will will do that. And in order to sell the plan, and sell the plan around, you, you know, in advance of midterms too. There had to be this sort of this is happening, kind of like I don't know, Melissa. Did you get a whole lot of when when you saw the president, secretary of education, when they rolled this out? This I, I didn't get a whole lot of. Um, We'll see if this happens. Sort of vibes. It was like an announcement. It was. It was like apply now. This is happening. We're delivering on the promise from the from 2020, and uh, and I don't know. Like I, I think I think there there needs to be responsibility here, and it's not just. I saw someone someone share some like you know one of those you know tweeters who's on the White House's tweet list. Um, uh, the, the, one of their one of their talkers, you know, said, you know, Biden did everything we asked of him. You know, this isn't his responsibility; it's the courts. You know, blame blame the court. And I'm, no, no, no. This, the buck stops with the policy. The buck stops with the policy. And, and and this is not again. This is 
this this decision was not a surprise. No. You know, if, if this decision came out of left field, then you could say, well, how? How were they supposed to know that the court would step in on this? But the second the decision came out, everyone was like, oh, I'm not sure if the, I don't think the courts are going to accept this. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good sign that responsibility doesn't just lie with the courts. It decides it lies with the people who made the decisions to, to proceed in this way. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, we're, uh, th- that is the Supreme Court uh, roundup. I, I, I don't think anything happened over the last couple of weeks that is going to sort of like mollify Supreme Court uh, uh, critics uh, on the left. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, part of the fact of the matter is Supreme Court critics on the left won't be mollified until the balance of the Supreme Court is more favorable to the left. And then we'll have conservative critics like we had for years about the injustice of the activist the progressive activist court on the on the left, and that's just the way these these things go. Yeah, as Bruce Almighty would say, that is just the way the cookie crumbles. <laughs> that is, we need a religious freedom case about Bruce Almighty. I think yeah, uh, hitting the court. All right. Well, I hope that was helpful uh, to you all sifting through. Uh, I don't I don't know if you're like me, but you know these the Supreme Court announcements are released at like usually like around 10 in the morning mm-hmm. during the weekday. So you get these headlines, but you know, we'll have varying levels of capacity to stop what we're doing and actually figure out what happened. And so we wanted to take this episode to walk you through some of the contours. All right. That's all for this episode of where we are. Thanks for listening. As always, we'll be back with the morning five this week and a new episode of Where We Are next weekend. Happy 4th. Bye. Picking your phone up Why are you messing